Bible, you can open it to Daniel chapter 2, or you can read along on, on the screen, or if you have a favorite Bible app, you can do that. So we continue our, our series in the book of Daniel. We're thinking about what it means to live as exiles in a culture uh, that is not one submitted to Jesus. It's not one ruled by the kingdom of God. And this is an area that we need help in. And so as we study through this book, of course we can't answer every single question every week. Daniel is a big book. But I do want to encourage you that if you, if you come to the end of the sermon and you're like me, because I was often the listener in the crowd, in the congregation, that was like, man, he, he didn't answer that one question about that one verse, but the one thing I was hoping he would talk about. And so just know that like we can't say everything about everything every time, but those questions are good. So if you're like, hey, I'd like to get coffee and talk about this verse, that, that is welcomed. We think that's a good thing. And, and I know that I would certainly welcome that as well. And so Daniel chapter 2, this week we're just going to read the text at the beginning to make sure we actually get through it. Chris, if you can just click forward to, to verse 31. We're just going to start there because this is quite a long chapter. Last week, if you weren't here, we looked at the, the first half of the chapter. And we'll do a little bit of a recap on that in a minute. Uh, but this week we're going to focus on the interpretation of this dream and the revelation of it that was given to Daniel for King Nebuchadnezzar, and then the sort of promotion that Daniel has received and how that fits in with what we talked about last week in terms of being God's exiled people in this world. So beginning in verse 31, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the shaft of the summer fleshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image would become a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So Daniel gives the revelation and just a little bit of backdrop if you weren't here last week. Uh, what really frustrated Nebuchadnezzar is he's had this dream and it doesn't tell us whether he couldn't remember it or he just wanted to, to check the credibility of his wise people. But he didn't merely want them to give the interpretation of the dream. He wanted them to tell him what the dream actually was. And so we, we talked last time about why that's so important. And so Daniel's given him now that revelation. Daniel has just did, and we don't need to skip over that, what the wisdom of the world couldn't do through the wisdom of God. Verse 36, now the interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of heaven, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and to whose, into whose hand he has given... Wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with a soft clay. 
And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mix with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors, many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you today for your word. We pray that you would take by your Holy Spirit and open our eyes to see the truth that is here. We would not only see it as something to be read, but as truth to read us. We pray tonight, God, that you would take what could just be a, a, a dispensing of information and that you would make it a truly transformative moment where we are led to the presence of Jesus who is here and whom we acknowledge, whom we acknowledge, and that we would leave today having seen more of our lives and hearts under his reign and more of our world under his good rule. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2016, uh, some other pastors have noted uh, Jim Carrey's Golden Globe acceptance speech. Now, most of us probably in here can't remember what we ate for lunch last week, much less Jim Carrey's Golden Globe acceptance speech from 2016. But it's actually quite amazing. I'm just going to assume everybody in here knows who Jim Carrey is. Uh, many consider one of the great comedians of our time. This was his, this was his speech. Actually, it wasn't his acceptance. It was his introducing the nominees. He said, thank you. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. Now, as he's sharing this, I wish I could show the video, but I, I just knew that probably would mess up. The crowd's starting to, you know, the nervous laughter. <laughs> it kind of pans in on Denzel Washington and, and some famous people like that. And, and then when he says this, it gets weirder. So he's dreaming about being three-time Golden Globe winner. He said, because then I would be enough. It would finally be true and I could stop this. This terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. 
and now people are thinking, is this, am I supposed to be laughing, or what's the response? You can look it up. He says, but these are important, these awards. I don't want you to think that just because if you blew up our solar system alone, you wouldn't be able to find any of us or any human history with the naked eye. But from our perspective, this is huge. And now to introduce this year's nominees for best performance in a comedy. Now, Jim Carrey doesn't claim to follow Jesus. Neither did Nebuchadnezzar. But this restlessness of the, the why behind our existence, the why behind our suffering, the why behind our lives, it lingers for all of us. And no degree of worldly accolades, performance, praise shuts that down. You can be Jim Carrey, whom many would consider to be about as successful as you could get, and still look at yourself in this group of actors and think, this is actually the biggest joke of all, that we think this really matters. If you've not got there in your life, you will get there. And we live in a world that is there all around us. Whether that's people whom we often refer to as broken, that are in us and among us, wondering, like, what is just wrong with me? Why can't I get it together? I guess I'm just fundamentally flawed. Whether it's those of you who are burnt out or burnt out in our southern religious culture, like, man, I, I did all the right Bible studies. I've, I've attended all the right church events. I've, I've been really faithful to serve in all the right ways. But it just never feels like enough. And I, I'm just tired of being told to do better and try harder. Or it's those we refer to as the bored. Who were told, man, life is going to be great for you. And one day you will have your Disney World finished. You'll get that job you always wanted. You'll get to be the person who goes to work every day and you're just always fulfilled. And then you'll get that relationship you wanted and it'll just always be great. And you know, and if, if you read these right Christian books and if you, if you go through these right steps, then guess what? You can eliminate that pain and longing from your life. And except once you get there, you're right back where Jim Carrey is and Nebuchadnezzar is and you're thinking, wow. wasn't enough. The reality is, is that regardless of what culture we find ourselves in, Christian or non-Christian, is that some experiences, situations, and sometimes just life cannot be dealt with through our own human resources. Like Nebuchadnezzar earlier in this chapter, we, we become restless because we hunger for not just people to tell us what's going on, but why? And a way that we try to fill in that gap is often through building kingdoms. Kingdoms where we sit upon the throne of our life and the throne of our story. And we think, if I can be the one at the top of the heap, then finally I can feel enough significance, I can feel enough success to finally be satisfied. But it's never enough. Last week we talked about how the gospel rests on the foundation that we 
praise be to God, don't live in what could be considered a closed system. That the reality of the world, the universe, and of creation is not just one of what we can see around us right now. It's not even one that's just connected and limited to our own senses. But, but for, for, for the risk of, of saying words that might sound showy or, or meaningless, it's a, it's a metaphys- there's a, a metaphysical reality. There's something beyond, greater than all we can see, touch, and feel. And that reality is God. And not a God who is some fatalistic, deistic creator who wound the world up like a watch and then just let it go. But a God who in all of his holiness that we sang about comes to meet us in this world and to live with us and to walk with us and to reveal himself. And this is amazing and it should blow our minds and humble us is that our great, holy and mighty God has created us to be known and to know him. That is not just a possibility, it's an essential part of what it means to be a human being as we were designed to be, to be able to know God truly. We talked last week, it doesn't mean we know Him fully. And oftentimes the wisdom of the world will tell us that if we can't know something fully, then we can't know it truly. But, but that's, a, that's, a, that's a deception. God may not tell us everything about Himself or everything about everything, but He tells us some things. And those things that He does tells us does tell us we can know because he delights to reveal himself through his word, through his son, through his spirit, and through his church. But our only hope for these ultimate answers to ultimate questions rely on God's revelation to answer our restless desperation. So again, last week we saw this in verses 1 through 12. Nebuchadnezzar's restless. He's ruthless, and yet in a sense he's reasonable. He wants to know he's just not being played by people. He knows if I, if I don't make you tell me what the dream actually was and just ask you for the interpretation, you can tell me anything. And I just need to accept your, your credentials and all the degrees and plaques you have hung on your wall. No, I want you to prove to me you actually know something more than just what you're pulling out of your own head. And we need to acknowledge that's where we are, that's where the world is, and we need to be holy provocateurs in that, in provokers. Sometimes Christians are labeled as those who are the least intellectually honest and intellectually curious people in the world. And it should be the opposite. We should be the people who are always the ones saying, why? We should be like little Caleb Nicholas, right? But why? But why? But why? Christians shouldn't be the ones afraid of that. We should be the ones who are at the front end of that. Because we have a confidence in a God who reveals himself. And that's why Daniel, as the story moves on, he says, I'll I'll take the challenge. Don't, Don't go kill everybody yet, Nebuchadnezzar. And before he's even received what this revelation is, he steps up to the plate because he believes in a God who is engaged the reality of the world and who reveals himself as wiser than the wisdom of man. He has faith to do this. He has friends who do it with him, as we saw. He's like, hey guys, I've kind of stepped up to this challenge. Let's pray. Let's pray hard. Let's pray together. And then as God answers that prayer, he gives praise to God. 
and he boldly steps into it. And this leads us to where we are today as we continue to see that we need to rely on God's revelation to answer the restless desperation in our own hearts and in our world. And so in verses 31 through 45, we see that we rely on God's revelation or his revealed wisdom when kingdoms come and go. So in these verses, verses 31 through 45, we see this image of this dream that's given. Now, there are different views about these different kingdoms. Again, this is one of those what areas that if you want to talk details on this, let's grab coffee. But one wrong way I believe this text is often taught or preached is people have actually like did sermons on the ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And there's really not a lot of emphasis in this text on the toes. Right? There's, a, there's a bigger emphasis, I think, that we see here. And so there's a Roman view of this, whether this last kingdom is the Roman Empire or a Greek view of this, whether it's the Greek Empire. Those who take it as sort of the Roman view would say at the top here we have Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, obviously, because he says that's who that one is. So that one's clear in any interpretive grid. But then you may have Medo-Persia who comes along. Then you have the Greeks who come along. And then finally the Roman Empire that comes along. That seems to make sense to me. There are some different views on that. But in terms of history, what is being said here is that there are kingdoms and cultures that have real power. They exercise real influence. They have real control, and they make a a real difference in this world. But even the biggest, baddest, and best of them don't last. I mean, it's just, it's just implicit, if not explicit, in the text. Nebuchadnezzar, to you whom God has given all might and glory and honor. But the next one's coming. It's a kingdom inferior to you, but yours isn't going to last. And then guess what? A next one's coming. And a next one's coming. And so history goes. That no matter how great the empire, how great the country, how great the kingdom, how wonderful the culture, if it's just a flash in the pan in the big scheme of things. But, verses 44 and 45 tell us, there's a kingdom that comes into the world that is not a kingdom of human origin. It's not a kingdom that's the product of a human culture. It's not a human kingdom that's the product of a man-made plot or political system. But it's the kingdom of God. A kingdom that shall never be destroyed, verse 44 says. And it's a kingdom, notice, that shall never be left to another people. It is a kingdom that will break all other kingdoms, bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And this is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom that Daniel finds himself within even though he is in exile. But it's a kingdom for Daniel that has not yet come to its fulfillment. That has not yet reached its climax. That has not yet been seen to be made manifest in this world through its ultimate king. The king whom Israel would have longed for. The king whom this whole world was created for. The king who was at the center of the story of all of history. It's the king whom we know by the name of Jesus and Nazareth. It's the one who said that he was the stone that the builders rejected. It was the king who said, if you build your house on this rock, 
then though all the winds, all the waves of the world come against you, though even death itself bring its shadow upon your life, it will stand. It's the king who is the rock who gives us the kingdom that is the rock. How did Daniel see this? Well, he, he couldn't come up with this on his own. And none of us could. The gospel is too good to be true. The gospel is, as, as some people say, stranger than fiction. I don't remember the quote, but Cassie told me that, that some, maybe it was Mark Twain said that if you're, if, you're, if you're writing fiction, it has to seem true or people won't believe it. But if it's nonfiction, real life, it doesn't have to seem true. We've all lived experiences like that where it's like, if that wasn't true, I wouldn't believe it and nobody would tell me. Well, the gospel in such a way is like that. It's so scandalous in its grace. But it's also so scandalous in its victory. Imagine Daniel here in front of Nebuchadnezzar and all of the Babylonian Empire. He is a slave serving in this kingdom. And he's saying, by the way, the kingdom of God is going to make all of this look like nothing in the end. That had to be revealed by God. And then as Jesus comes on the scene, I mean, let's just be honest. Is that looking like any kind of victory? Oh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Here's me and my 12, uh, I was about to say a word I learned from Joe, I'm not going to say that. Here's my 12, you know, boneheads and all these other people following them. Here we are. We don't, we don't even got a house to live in. The, the, the government hates us. Israel, religious leaders, they hate us. We're out here spending our time with the sick, with the nobodies, with the prostitutes, with the tax collectors. The kingdom of God is at hand. We didn't have the revelation of God in his word and in his son. That looks like you might be scratching your head and say, Jesus, I think you've lost it. And if that wasn't enough, then we see him led to a cross. One author pointed this out. What was Jesus' crown? It was a crown of thorns. What was his robe? Well, it was, a, it was a, a garment of mockery. Ooh, Jesus, the king. What was his throne? It was the cross. It, it looks as if Jesus loses. But at the very moment where it seems to all practical appearances, Jesus has been declared to be a fraud. Even they put a, a placard over his head that says, King of the Jews, to make fun of him. 
Jesus was not culturally accepted. And Jesus was not religiously accepted. But he knew the story that he was in. And it was a story of an identity rooted in this very vision that we see Daniel giving to Nebuchadnezzar. That however it appears to the world that the kingdom of God is triumphant. But it is not a kingdom that is triumphant according to the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world cannot answer the heart's deepest longings or the world's deepest needs. Oh, how the cross exposed the ridiculous sham of our human kingdoms. And yet so often the people of God in our exile can take on a swagger like the nations or assume that we win in the world only by becoming like them. But on the cross, Jesus dies for the idolatry of what victory looks like for all of us. Because for many of us in the world, the way of the world is the only way that we win is through a proud independence that doesn't need God and doesn't need others, but asserts ourselves and grabs on to our own glory and our own reign. And yet it is through the very path of the humility of Christ that God, it says expressly in his his word, is the revelation of his wisdom. That we see him, the risen King of kings and Lord of lords, who will reign forever and who will one day return. And as God's people cling to Jesus and his rule and his reign, then we can endure in exile. I had some really jacked up teeth as a child. And if you were to even come now and look in my mouth, which I don't recommend. Daniel has to give me mints all the time, right? It might not just look bad in there. It might not smell too good either. But even behind this bottom row of teeth, I still have this permanent retainer that gives the hygienist a fit every time I go to get my teeth cleaned when my wife forces me to do that. When I was younger, fifth and sixth grade, I'm talking like, and I'm not making fun of you. I'm saying that's me if, that, if you have teeth stuff. So I'm just saying I feel you. I, I had to have this thing go in the roof of my mouth where they put a key in it and turn it. If any of you have ever endured that, this is like torture. Like if I was a serial killer and I was thinking like how do I want to torture people before I you know, disembowel them, I'm going to think I'm going to put a device in their mouth and turn it and stretch their mouth out with a key. That's what, that was my life in the sixth grade. And then they gave me this lip bumper. This is unnecessary detail. but So I had this lip thing. I don't even remember what it was for. But I had to, sixth grade, you know, you're moving into middle school. It's weird. You're wanting to be accepted and cool. And I just walked around drooling all day long. Because I couldn't help it, right? My lips just stuck out like this. And then I had to go to this this orthodontist, and it, it did feel like a torture chamber. I think that's the right word for the braces, folks, right? Orthodontist. We'd drive. We'd have to go all the way to Calhoun, Georgia, not, not Tennessee. And, and then in there, this guy would do all kinds of, like, torturous things to me. You know, remember those bands they put on there? It's like, I can't even open your mouth. Anyway, it was horrible. But, but my papa Frank took me. And he was such a peaceful man. 
But as nice as he was, this was the epitome of his kindness and grace, is there was a Shawnee. And I know not all of you in here have got to experience Shawnees, but just roll with me here. Shawnees had an ultimate breakfast bar. So uh, evidently they couldn't stay in business, so maybe it wasn't good enough. But I missed the Shawnee's breakfast bar. And one thing I knew is I could go in there and, oh, Dr. So-and-so could to do his Frankenstein work on my mouth. But afterwards, I was going to be having all the bacon and gravy and biscuits that my mouth could endure. And it just made, I could endure it. I could endure it because I knew what was going to be at the end of it. At the end of it, Shawnee Bear would be there to greet me and welcome me into his kingdom of, of breakfasts. When we know that something is temporary, it's so much easier to endure. When we know something is temporary, it's easy to endure. Easier. Some days it, it feels hard to be a follower of Jesus. Some days we may think, I'm not going to make it. Some days we may think, I don't know if a church is going to make it. And some days, if we're honest, we may think, I don't know if Jesus is going to make it. But the good news of the gospel is he is. He's going to make it. He's not worried. And guess what? If you're his, you're going to make it. It doesn't matter what this world can do to you, maybe from the outside world or your own inside world. If you are in Christ, the story's already been written. We've already been given the ending. It used to be that to be a Christian meant to hear these words hurled at you at any time you would want to bring God's word to bear on something. This was like, it used to be maybe John 3.16 was the world's most memorized verse, but here's the one that I experienced a lot of my life is the most verse. Judge not lest you be judged. Right? Like any, I mean... And any unbeliever might not know Noah from Abraham, but they know that verse, right? You want to bring up anything about the way of Jesus in the world, oh, well, I just want to point out, Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged, so shut up and stay out of my business. But I would say now there's one that's wielded even a little more strongly, maybe, and it's this one. You're on the wrong side of history you've not felt that lunged at you, you've just not got out enough. It's wielded like an intimidating source of conversation stopping. Well, I'd be careful. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. This is why we need Daniel chapter 2. Who decides what's the wrong side of history? I hope I don't. I don't trust myself enough to decide that. But I'm glad that God gives us his word, the ability to understand it through, through the spirit, through his community, through church history, past and present, east and west. Because when it looks like God's people have lost or are losing, we have to remember it's God who reveals who wins. The kingdoms and cultures of this world have always confronted God's people as being on the wrong side of history. That is nothing new. 
Daniel looks like he is way on the wrong side of history. Israel's being defeated and deported as he speaks. If Daniel's sitting back and saying, man, Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't it stink to be a loser? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar's scratching his head thinking, Daniel, uh, excuse me, I'm the one with all the power here and you're the one enslaved. We've got to let that get into our system if we're going to be God's faithful people in this world. These current confrontations we have as God's people are nothing new. And it's also not about progressive or conservative because both of these camps give us some form of get with the times. News flashes that Jesus is neither a Republican nor a Democrat, and also he's not an American. And we're not Israel as a country. We are the people of God in Christ. Exiles in a foreign land who are called to follow him and not let this world push us into their petty little narratives and categories and labels. The world may tell us from a progressive side, hey, don't be naive. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history when it comes to sexuality. But we say we're just going to go to God's word and let Jesus decide what's the right side of history. From a conservative side of things, they'll say, don't be naive. You're going to have to have a Nebuchadnezzar-type leader if we want to win in this world. And we say, no, we're not playing that game. It's not about winning political battles. It's about following Jesus. Both sides want to tell us history's not going to look well on you. And we must say, we're just going to do our best to follow Jesus and find our history bound up with his and where it's not rest on his grace. You know, God doesn't need us to save Christianity from its culture despisers by reducing the Bible to myths, metaphors, and morals that modern people can't stomach any more than Daniel needed to in the face of defeat. But it's also our individual kingdoms. Many of us have idols that are beckoning us to take the throne in our own hearts. We use these words often, control, comfort, approval, performance. Some of you think, if I just could get those things, then I'd win. Every one of us in this room this morning, especially me, you have your if-only of life. You have your golden globe or whatever it is. If only I had that. But whatever that is, it will not be enough and it will not last. And so this leads us to our last point, which we have to be really quick on here, is, is that we must rely on God's revealed wisdom when influence offers identity and isolation. So Daniel gets promoted. We're here now in verses 46 through 49. And, and this is crazy. Nebuchadnezzar worships Daniel almost here. You see, he pays homage to him, gives him gifts, promotes him. And then it seems that Nebuchadnezzar praises God. But before we think revival's work, worked out, just a preview towards next week, he's going to be throwing people in, in a fiery furnace for not <laughs> worshiping him. So he has the temporary, the temporary approval of an earthly king. 
But we notice a couple things here in verses 49 that are so important. The first is Daniel remembers his friends. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as we saw, Hananiah, Ashael, and uh, I can't remember the last one off the top of my head. He appoints them, but then it ends with saying, but Daniel remained at the king's court. So he remembers his friends, but he also has to stand alone. He has to stand alone. It is hard to stand alone as an exile in this world. It's very hard. And if we don't have God's revelation of who we are and what story we're in and whose we are and what people we're really a part of, it can get very tricky to hold fast and firm to the identity that we have in Christ. Just this past week, I I saw a little goofy video that I don't fully endorse, but I thought it got it a a helpful thing. It was called Tyler, the Ex-Evangelical Quit Swimming. Now, now what this was about, if, if you're not familiar with this, it's, it's saying how many people in our, in our culture, in our world, are abandoning the faith because they feel like the church really doesn't deal with the questions that they're asking and the doubts that they have. And to a certain degree, that's true. But what this satirical video points out, again, I don't, I don't like kind of the, the snarky attitude that's behind it, but, but it speaks to something important, is that this guy's over here about to quit swimming but he's just stayed in the shallow end of the pool by himself. So he's over here saying, you know, I've just got to get out of the church. It really doesn't answer the questions that I've had. It doesn't deal with the doubts. But then these two other dudes are over here like in the deep end of the pool, and they're like saying, hello, <laughs> we're over here. We could, we could talk to you about that. And, and he just remains over here saying, whoa, no tread on my shoes. Is, is nobody's really answering my questions. No, nobody will talk to me. And, and it's just ignoring the fact that, again, for my purposes, is that there's a whole, a whole history of the people of God who have wrestled with deep things. Who ha- there's, there's like no new questions that we have that like don't have almost centuries of people who have dealt with them. Even now in this room, there are some of you who maybe are having really big questions about your faith, maybe even about your identity. And the reality is you're, you're, you're processing that by yourself. And this is what so often happens. If you take all this, these years of your life to process these deep questions by yourself, whether that's about your identity or whether that's about some faith belief that you have, and, and you're kind of nervous and ashamed to say it out loud, and so you process it by yourself, or what you do is you go and find another community to process it with that aren't Christians, because maybe rightfully so you've been hurt or harmed by other Christians. And so you're like, no, no, shatter at me, shack and go. I'm going to wrestle with this inside myself, and then these people feel safe. They don't feel judgmental. I'm going to talk to them. And then one day, what will happen, and I have such a burden for you guys that this doesn't happen, is that you show up back amongst the people of God and you say, this is what I believe or this is my identity, either accept me or not. Instead of actually journeying with one another in that pathway, having the courage to ask those hard questions. And I just want to say I can't speak for the church at large and I can't say that Matthew's Table Church is perfect but we welcome you in that journey. 
to sit at our tables and to, to enjoy our fellowship, it doesn't mean you have to have all your questions answered. It doesn't mean you have to have all your identity figured out. But it is not safe to process it alone. And it is not God's design that you would go and find some other community that feels safer to you to process that with. And if we're not the church you feel safe to do that with, then we don't have to be the hero of that story. And another issue related to that that I just have to mention because even though we're way out of time is let's say as a pastor I really hurt you. Guess what? I could do that. Let's say as a church, Matthew's Table Church really hurts you. And so you, like Daniel, now become alone. For different reasons, but now you're alone. Will you still cling to Jesus? Or will you say things like, that church hurt me, and because they believe those things, then I guess those things aren't valid. That's happening all around us every day. People, many people who take this slide away from faithfulness to God and the revelation of who he is, it is not because they've had some great intellectual convincing that took place. It's because they've been hurt. They've been hurt by the church. They've been hurt by God's people, some fraction of it. And so it, it leads into this, this isolation and what I want to call us to do is Daniel, the only way he could hang on when he was by himself is his hope was not in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His hope was in the kingdom of God. That Jesus rules, that Jesus reigns is what that vision pointed to. And that gave him an identity that he could stand alone. Our only hope is in the better Daniel, Jesus. He never compromised his identity for power. Church people do that a lot. Church leaders do. Jesus never did. He never compromised God's story for comfort or titles or worldly acclaim. But we ultimately rest in him because he never compromised his love for you so that he could have some inclusion by other people. Isn't that beautiful? He would have just played along with either the world or the religious people. He could, have been, he could have really been loved and not been killed. But he said, I want you, you, specifically you and me, to be with me in God's kingdom forever. Even if that means I have to be hated and excluded by the very people I most wanted to be loved and welcomed by. He stood alone for us so that we never have to. But without God's revelation, we may think we're just left to the winds of history, to the praise of men, or to just find some social group that we can tolerate their thoughts and beliefs and culture. But the good news is, is that God has revealed himself to us in Christ and has given us a kingdom that will not be shaken. Father, we thank you today for the revelation of the victory of Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to stand in it as exiles in this world. That we could be in the world but not of the world. That we would not become separatists or conformists. That we would live in our cities and enjoy all the beauties of creation found in culture and fellowship 
with people who sometimes don't even uh, care about you at all, that we would be people known by our love and joy and blessing. And we would be able to do it not out of fear, but out of faith. That we would not be insecure, that we would not be on the defensive, because we know that you have won and that we are yours. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.